There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. And I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. That was Elon Musk, famed for Tesla, SpaceX, PayPal, and some recent trouble with the SEC, telling a large crowd that in the coming years we'll have no choice but to institute some version of a universal basic income, or a UBI. Now, for the uninitiated, a UBI is a cash payment provided to everyone without regard to income or employment status. And Musk is among the most prominent voices, suggesting the most dramatic need, but he's certainly not the only one. There's a growing group of executives, policymakers, and politicians, as varied as James Baker on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left, advocating for it. Now, for the social policy nerds among us, it's the current flavor of the week and might become the next slinky and take the country by storm. But is that a good thing? Some have raised concerns that it could cause unemployment to rise, productivity to shrink, and the government to go bankrupt. Now, are these concerns valid or founded in any reality or evidence? Luckily, the UBI has been around for decades. So we're going to do what academics do best. Speak an overly complex jargon for 45 minutes when three minutes would have done the job. Well, we'll do that too, but we're really going to focus on the other thing academics are known for. We're going to assess evidence to evaluate competing claims and draw conclusions based on the information at hand on this episode of Bending the Arc. Welcome to the late October edition of Bending the Arc from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Treglia. And yes, I know that late October looks an awful lot like early November, but this is what happens when you three-year-old needs a rocket ship in time for Halloween. So today we're going to dive into the universal basic income with two people making waves on the topic. Christopher Lee, a state legislator from Hawaii, and Dr. Joanna Marinescu, an assistant professor here at SB2 and a recognized expert on the topic. Now, the concept of a UBI sounds almost like a parody of liberal governance, free money with no strings attached. Sure, we expect that out of Finland, but here in the United States? Well, back in the Nixon administration, the U.S. almost had a national universal basic income. Initial drafts of Nixon's family assistance plan would have provided some support to every household in the United States but late changes introduced work requirements and other limitations, ultimately becoming the plan's undoing. But it was a serious proposal by a Republican president, and that's a big deal. In fact, what did come out of that were small localized UBI experiments managed by senior Nixon officials like Dick Cheney. Yes, that Dick Cheney. And there are already fully implemented versions of a UBI here in the United States, along with a rigorous experiment being managed by SP2's other expert on the topic, Dr. Amy Castro-Baker. The most well-known one is in Alaska, in which all residents receive a dividend from Alaska's permanent fund, which is money paid to the state by oil companies for the right to drill on state land. Now, again, this is Alaska, not known as a bastion of liberalism, and residents generally receive somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 each year. The second group with a fully blown UBI is the Eastern Band of Cherokees, where profits from the tribe's casinos are distributed across its members. As I mentioned a bit earlier, we're also in the beginning stages of a rigorous experiment to see the effects of a UBI in Stockton, California, just east of San Francisco. Now, proponents of a universal basic income generally support the idea for three distinct reasons. First is the reasoning behind Alaska's program. 
which is a way to place a value on shared natural resources and ensure that everyone benefits from the use of them. This actually descends directly from the first discussions of the UBI in the U.S. by Thomas Paine, better known for his common sense pamphlet advocating for independence from Great Britain. Now, Paine argues that there exists natural property, quote, that which comes from the creator of the universe, such as the earth, air, water. Access to these resources and benefits from the use of them, he argued, are not a charity, but a right. Second, there are some supporters, many of whom identify as libertarian or conservative, like political scientist Charles Murray, who see the UBI as a way to phase out assistance programs that target specific needs, like Medicare and SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The logic being, if we give all people some kind of assistance, the government has done its part, and now if people fall through the cracks, that's on them. The third stream of support, and probably the most common, is driven by an economic argument, that the current economy does not currently, nor will in the future, promote opportunities for financial stability. For many, like Elon Musk, who you heard from earlier, or Andy Stern, the former head of the Service Employees International Union, their support for UBI is rooted in fear of a mass unemployment as computerization and automation become even more ubiquitous. Now, this fear is not exactly new, the famed economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that technology would render human capital largely redundant, and late New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote about Nixon's family assistance plan in the context of a coming wave of automation and layoffs. And there's good reason to be wary. We've all seen self-checkout lines at grocery stores and computer kiosks for ordering food at restaurants, and by all estimates, this is just the beginning. A few years ago, Two Oxford economists assigned a probability to every occupation in the United States that it would be replaced by computers in about the next 10 years. And the results aren't pretty. 60% of U.S. workers have better than even odds of being replaced by automation. And many of those most at risk, cashiers, retail salespersons, and food preparers, are already on the economic bubble. There are plenty of people that argue that we don't need to wait for some major unemployment event before looking to universal basic income that many people who do everything right and play by the rules right now are still falling through the cracks. And that's where Hawaii State Representative Chris Lee comes in. He's been in the State House for close to 10 years. And one of the things I liked most about talking to Representative Lee was that he did not aspire to be a politician. And therefore, electoral preservation isn't his top priority. A lot of the stuff that, that I care about personally, that I set out to accomplish from the outset, I feel like we've been able to do, or at least move the needle on in a significant way that's driving the conversations about you know, economic justice and climate change and uh, uh, equal rights and things like that uh, significantly, both here and across the country. And I think um, if, I, if I lose my next election tomorrow, then you know, I'm okay because the time was well spent. So let's start with an assessment of the economic landscape in Hawaii. Official labor and wealth indicators paint a pretty rosy picture. This state has the lowest unemployment rate in the country, at 2.1% as of July 2018, and the ninth lowest official poverty rate. But as Representative Lee explains, that doesn't mean that everything in Hawaii is all peaches and cream. Well, while our, our unemployment numbers are fantastic, the best in the country, we've got almost everyone with a job. The fact of the matter is, that doesn't translate into reflecting real-world conditions. The average family, the average individual is certainly not earning enough uh, generally to make ends meet. We have significant problems with finding uh, housing for, for growing families and our next generation. Jobs don't pay as much as they 
they could or used to. And what that means ultimately is that people are living on shoestring budgets. Nearly half our population, nearly half the households in the state at this point are on the border of insolvency. That last statistic comes from the Alice Project from the United Way of Northern New Jersey, which we'll link to in our show notes and talk about more in a future episode. And full disclosure, at which I also serve as a research fellow. Alice stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, and it represents the people who are more than the official poverty level, but still can't get by. To measure that, they created a set of household budgets that represent the bare minimum a household needs to survive. And as we just heard, they found that 49% of Hawaiian households fall below that threshold. That's the highest or worst in the country, even while the official unemployment and poverty numbers look pretty good. So Representative Lee sponsored a resolution that does two things. I thought it was important to do two things. Um, one, to define for our both our legislature here in Hawaii that's making a lot of decisions about where we're going as a state, but also about our entire state and our, our community here and our society. That's a statement of really, what are we talking about? Because it's not, it's not poverty numbers. It's not this or that, the other thing. It's really, what are our values and what priorities then do we move forward with based upon those values? And so the first thing that this resolution does is get the legislature in Hawaii on board saying all families, all families deserve basic financial security. I know the audio breaks up at the end there, so let me repeat what he said. The resolution declares that all families deserve basic financial security. There is no other state, to my knowledge, that has made that declaration. Second, the resolution creates a working group to explore ways to fulfill that obligation, with a particular focus on the option of a universal basic income. The resolution passed unanimously, so you might expect answers imminently. But I've worked in government, and I know how long working groups take to get together, research a topic, and write a report. And frankly, I'm not that patient. So our crack team here did a little research of our own with the help of Dr. Ioana Marinescu. So my first question to Dr. Marinescu was why the UBI has come into such a vogue at the moment. The, the idea is out there and is gaining traction for a number of different reasons. And because there's a lot of discontent with the economic situation, I think that the idea has some wind because we are in a moment of economic pain and therefore an economic um, measure like this that gives cash can you know, seem appealing. Echoing some of what we heard from Representative Lee, she took particular effort to disabuse me of any notion that improved unemployment and stock market figures represented universal financial security and with it, a lack of need. The low unemployment rate in the U.S. is a bit of a mirage. Um, you know, actually, the labor force participation is extremely low. So just to remind you, the unemployment rate is the share of people who don't have jobs among those who are looking for jobs. Are not counted in the unemployment rate people who gave up on looking for jobs. And in the U.S., the amount of people who are working age who gave up looking for jobs is higher than in most other rich countries. And therefore, those people aren't counted as unemployed. That's why the low unemployment rate that we see is a bit of an illusion because it doesn't take into account all those people who dropped out of the labor force who gave up. And many of them are on disability insurance. We think many of them might be experiencing the op opioid epidemic. So really, the situation isn't as great as you think, for one, in terms of employment. Second, in terms of income, wages 
have in real terms, so once you adjust for the price of living, not grown at all for your typical Joe for 30 years. So, and you know, after a while, this hurts. Okay. So let's presume we've made a convincing argument that there's compelling financial need or that we should allow everyone to receive a cut from the private use of precious natural resources. The largest fears about a UBI generally center around work, that people will leave the labor force en masse. And those arguments come from both sides of the aisle. Here's Joe Biden raising his concerns. Well, my dad was a white collar worker, a salesperson, but there was not, nothing to sell after coal died. And we moved to Delaware where there were actually good jobs. And every time someone would lose a job, my dad would say, you know, Joey, my word to this, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. That's what it's about. Dignity. I asked Representative Lee to respond to that and similar objections. And his response was largely that, yes, work is important. But it's not the only thing that's important. What you know, Joe Biden and others have said, and I have great respect for a lot of these folks because they're far smarter than I and certainly have more history than I on a lot of these issues. But I think what it goes back to is, and I say this loosely, but a changing mindset and perhaps generational divide in some cases over what values drive us as Americans and define for us uh, the American dream. We have to start to rethink what the definition of work is. And is work the end goal? Is it how we want to define ourselves? Or is it something else? Has the American dream evolved such that we now place value in what we contribute to society, not through work and earning a paycheck, but rather what kind of quality of life can we provide ourselves and those around us? So we did what nerds do, and we looked at the data. And there's not a ton of it, but there's enough to start drawing some conclusions about the effect of a universal basic income on work participation rates. And generally, those fears have not been borne out by the data thus far. You know, based on the evidence that we have, there is very little impact of um, cash on work, especially the kind of unconditional cash that comes with no strings attached. Many studies have found absolutely no impact, including randomized control trials in developing countries and the number of natural experiments in the U.S. And some studies have found small effects, uh, even for pretty large amounts of money. So, for example, people have looked at lottery winners in Sweden and uh, winning $100,000 will reduce your probability of working by two percentage points for maybe four or five years, and then it comes back to normal. So these effects are very small. Not only did we not see some of the negative consequences that are feared, but we can quantify some very positive outcomes that seem to trickle down from that additional income. There's been a study on the eastern part of Cherokee. There was, again, no impact at all on working. So they're just as likely to work as before, similar to the Alaska study. And uh, there was a positive effect on uh, mental health uh, for children and on education for children. Education increased, mental health improved, and criminality decreased among both youth and adults. One really, really striking finding of that is looking at the impact on youth mental health. One of the things that was improved was substance abuse. And that's really important because some people think if you give poor people cash, they're going to spend it on drugs and alcohol. And in this case, it's exactly the opposite that happened. 
So now if we don't think it's going to tank our economy, then we ask, so who gets it? Well, that depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If it's entirely to distribute the profits from the use of natural resources, then maybe it's everyone equally or only adults or has been proposed by some proponents from the political right, only citizens. Alaska, for example, has a few restrictions based on residency and incarceration history, but most people living in the state are eligible. That's just one version. For thinking of programs more explicitly aimed at reducing poverty or closing the gap between the rich and the poor, then the evidence, although limited and somewhat outdated, suggests that we need to prioritize kids. Work from Dr. Irv Garfinkel from the Columbia University School of Social Work and some of his collaborators suggests that a program seeking to reduce poverty will, at the minimum, include children and even better, prioritize or offer more for children than for adults. To that end, Canada has a newly implemented child allowance targeted to lower income families of $6,400 per year per child under six and $5,400 per year ages six to 17. And Cory Booker has proposed baby bonds in which every child receives a thousand dollar bond on the day they're born to be managed by the treasury until they turn 18 with additional government contributions depending on income level. Booker's office estimates that a child born into poverty could end up with approximately $46,000 to their name by the time they become 18. While some of these proposals might do quite a job to tackle inequality, Dr. Marinescu points out a critical limitation. That might help the most to alleviate poverty, but then it's not like the purest, like universal, same for all. Does it need to be? Maybe not. I think one of the reasons why the universal has some appeal is political reasons, solidarity reasons. You know, we all get the same thing. It's for everyone, right. uh, for everyone's freedom and security. And when I asked her if this was truly an opportunity to solve poverty, as many proponents have argued that it is, her response was one that's encountered in just about any social policy conversation. It can if it's high enough. Uh, but, you know, obviously if it's high enough, it's more expensive. So it's certainly no panacea. Uh, a really high level of the basic income requires a large amount of money to finance it. Because you remember, by definition of the universal basic income, it goes to everyone, even the rich among us. And while I haven't seen any definitive numbers that answer these questions about how much this is going to cost with confidence or where the money is going to come from, it's safe to say that proponents have built some consensus around using shared resources, as Thomas Paid suggested about 250 years ago. Let's look to two people who could not be farther apart politically. Former presidential candidate, Secretary of State, Senator and First Lady Hillary Clinton, and right-wing talking head Lou Dobbs. In her book called What Happened, reflecting on the 2016 presidential campaign, Clinton wrote, quote, Before I ran for president, I read a book called With Liberty and Dividends for All, how to Save Our Middle Class When Jobs Don't Pay Enough by Peter Barnes, which explored the idea of creating a new fund that would use revenue from shared natural resources to pay a dividend to every citizen, much like how the Alaska Permanent Fund distributes the state's oil royalties every year. I was fascinated by this idea, as was my husband, and we spent weeks working with our policy team to see if it could be viable enough to include in my campaign. We would call it Alaska for America, end quote. And here's Dobbs. In Alaska, there's a perfect model for what we should do as a nation. We should have what it's called there is a permanent trust. Let's call it uh, the American Trust. And oil companies who put about $10 billion into fees and royalties every year have that money go into this trust fund, not to be touched by the Treasury Department or any other federal agency, but simply for the investment on behalf of the American people. Citizens, a couple of things happen. One is it reminds everybody whose oil this is. 
whose coal this is and what the rights of an American citizen are. And it even puts a little money, a little dollar sign next to what it's worth to be a citizen. Now, does this make Hillary and Lou BFFs? Probably not. Although I, for one, still think they'd make a killer beer punk game. But it does demonstrate the emergence of a very non-traditional coalition around cash assistance that really doesn't feel like cash assistance. People don't see it as a handout. They see it as their right because they own collectively, you know, the, the minerals and the oils of Alaska. And so the dividend is their right. It's not a handout. It's, you know, it's something that they're entitled to. In that vein, Representative Lee looks to his state's abundant natural resources as an obvious source of revenue. What resources are common to all of us that everybody has a stake in because they're, they're public uh, or because they're, they're mutually owned? In Hawaii, of course, we don't have oil, but we do have uh, public land and natural beauty that everybody appreciates about Hawaii. So the question is, can we leverage that less to the benefit of any one company that might be leasing that land or uh, any one small group of folks who live on that land, but actually we're the only state in the country that doesn't have any basic fishing license. Anywhere else, you got to pay 5 or $10 uh, for the privilege of going out and, and catching fish that are a public resource that belong to everybody in our environment. Here, we don't do that. So can we take some money from there and put it to better use, returning it uh, for the common good? But let's face it, not every state is as beautiful as Hawaii or rich with oil like Alaska. So many are looking to attacks on corporate carbon emissions to both reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are primary drivers of climate change and, essentially, charge the companies producing this pollution for the damage caused by those emissions. Pollution is an externality. What we mean with externality is the fact that a firm produces, it pollutes, that cre the pollution creates negative impacts for people and businesses down the road. For example, if a firm dumps uh, pollu pollutants in a river and someone, some other company is fishing, small companies fishing on the river, the fish is going to get worse. But we call it an externality because the big polluting firm who's polluting the river isn't compensating the fishermen for the loss. That's why we call it an externality because a bad is being produced with no compensation. And so that's where something like a pollution tax, of which the carbon tax is one example, kicks in to make the polluters pay for the damage that they're making other people incur without compensating them. This has received backing from some very prominent conservative politicians, notably former Secretary of State James Baker and Secretary of the Treasury Henry Paulson. And beyond that, Representative Lee has a forceful response to questions around cost. And the biggest misconception I think people have about this conversation about a basic income or, or any sort of dividends mechanism is that you got to generate new money to pay for it. But the truth is we're already as taxpayers and just as consumers spending enormous amounts of money. Uh, so can we then tweak that system to be more efficient? And can a dollar we spend today be spent in a different way that can be used to offset uh, a basic income or a dividend payment? And will those dollars uh, from an economic perspective, go further because they're going to everybody. This is a conversation about national priorities. Will we take steps necessary to save our environment? Do we believe that the public should be compensated for the use of their shared inherent resources? Are we interested in, once and for all, eliminating poverty? In his 1967 book, Where Do We Go From Here?, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. declared that, quote, the solution to poverty is to abolish it directly from a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income, end quote. And it was two years later that Nixon proposed the Family Assistance Plan. 
the UBI had a moment in the spotlight then to relatively little avail. And then came Reaganomics and the rise of blue dog Democrats and the concept set on the shelf. But here we are 50 years later and the universal basic income has another moment in the limelight. I can't tell you what's going to happen this time or even really what should happen. The evidence on a UBI certainly suggests that this could be a tool to reduce inequality in greenhouse gas emissions and could ensure that people are compensated for the use and pollution of their shared resources like oil and the air. To that end, the work of Dr. Baker and her team in Stockton, California will be critical to building that roadmap. But at least as importantly, the UBI is not the end-all be-all. It is a means toward an end. The UBI will not eliminate poverty or inequality if it merely supplants rather than supplements the existing social safety net. To really mean something and continue in the spirit of Dr. King, it must, like the moral universe itself, bend toward justice. That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc. Please check out our website, www.sp2, that's the number two, dot u-p-e-n-n dot e-d-u slash bending the arc for more information and for past episodes of our podcast. And feel free to send us an email at bendingtheark at sp2.upenn.edu with your thoughts on this episode or a suggestion for future topics. A special thanks again to our very knowledgeable guests, Representative Christopher Lee and Dr. Ioana Marinescu. And a heads up to Dr. Baker that I want to talk with you. When Stockton is done, you can come up for air. We'll be back in mid-November with another episode. Bye-bye for now.